Well, good morning. So I'm a little emotional, huh? Um, I'll, I'll share this. I didn't even didn't even realize till this morning, and I, you know, <clears throat> that this was going to happen. I mean, they told me about it, and then I think Darwin and Jacob had sent some emails throughout the week about the service, but I don't read those anyways. And, and But I came in here, and I go in the kitchen, and there's this big chocolate cake, and I'm like, well, what's Steve Foltz up to today? What's he, what is he doing? Um, but then I realized we're going to have a celebration because there's uh, an installment, and um, thank you. Thank you. Um, it means so much to Ada and I and to have that confidence um, that you that you have in us, and so we we just are overjoyed of um, the opportunity to live life alongside of you and to serve you uh, in the manner that Christ has served us all. So thank you for that. Back in our series uh, in the Book of Hebrews, we're going to be in chapter nine for the next three weeks, this week included. And so I'm, I'm taking the opportunity. We're going to read verses one to 14 of chapter 9, but we're going to be really focusing on verses 13 and 14. And I want to just take the opportunity to uh, pause here for a little bit and uh, to talk about something very specific uh, in the way of our guilt. So with that in mind, let me read for us uh, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning of verse 1 to verse 14. This is the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even, the, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing the eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies, the, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We pray for us and ask God to teach us his word. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning and we pray. Now as we open your word that you would um, open our eyes and our ears to hear and to see it. And that we would leave here changed people as a result. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. feel like I need to mention this too. We're obviously with the service, we're a little bit late and we're probably going to be a little bit late by the time we dismiss. Um, but I will make up time where I can. As I mentioned, we're going to pause here and we're going to look specifically at verses 13 and 14 and to talk about something that I think is prevalent in all of our lives, but doesn't, we don't really talk about it much. Uh, and that is our guilt. And it's something that these verses are addressing specifically. And so the three, what, three things that I want to uh, march through to get at this is the problem with our guilt today and the problem with our guilt today is that it just won't go away. And then I want to see how the Bible offers a solution for that. What is the solution to our guilt? And then finally, the power of that solution. So let's look at the problem with guilt today. In a brilliant article titled The Strange Persistence of Guilt by Wilfred McClay in the Hedgehog Review, McClay talks about how regardless of society's solutions to free men and women of guilt, largely by attempts to get rid of God, guilt seems to be as strong and persistent as ever. Since Freud and Nietzsche and into the 20th century with Hitchens and the new atheist movement, guilt was and is a product of sin. And the idea was if sin is the idea that you have done something wrong against God, all we need to do is get rid of God, therefore we get rid of sin, therefore we get rid of guilt. But according to McClay, the only problem with this idea after several centuries of testing is that this isn't quite what has happened. In fact, the opposite seems to be true. People's awareness of feeling guilty has only increased yet Without God, there is no way or no pathway in popular culture of the possibility for atonement or expiation. And this is a moral crisis, the article argues. Why why is guilt on the rise, you might ask? Why in the world, in all of our progress and all the things that we have accomplished as a society, why would guilt be on the rise? And McClay argues that its root is found in the incredible advancements of our technology. In other words, with technology comes the knowledge of this world, the knowledge of its joys, but also its sorrows, ultimately its sufferings. And with that knowledge, he argues, comes responsibility. And with that responsibility comes guilt. He says this, I can see pictures of a starving child in a remote corner of the world on my television and know for a fact that I could travel to that faraway place and relieve that child's immediate suffering If I care to, I don't do it, but I know I could whatever donation I make to a charitable organization. It can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon imprint. I can never give to the poor enough or support medical research enough or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. To be found blameless is a pipe dream. For the demands of an active conscience are literally as endless as an active imagination's ability to conjure them. Or as T.S. Eliot puts it, after such knowledge, what forgiveness 
McClay makes an incredible observation about guilt in the midst of today's mainstream culture. We can all open our phones and our computers and we can see an endless roadmap of headlines telling you all about the suffering going on in every corner of the globe. And with that knowledge, though, comes responsibility, which ultimately breeds guilt. But why do we feel guilty? Where does that come from? What is, the, what is this business of being found morally blameless? What can be done about it? In a more recent article by David Brooks this past March in the New York Times, titled The Strange Persistent of Guilt as well, he references McClay's article, noting that the best or the problem today is that we feel our guilt, but we have no formula for redemption. Society today is driven by, he says, an inextinguishable need to feel morally justified. In other words, we want a clean conscience. We want to get rid of this feeling of guilt that seems to never go away, but we have absolutely no formula or direction to atone for it. There is no way forward. So what is the answer? According to these articles, the only reliable way to feel morally justified in that culture is to assume the role of victim. McClay puts it this way, claiming victim status is the sole sure means left of absolving oneself and securing one's sense of fundamental moral innocence. If one wishes to be accounted innocent, one must find a way to make the claim that one cannot be held morally responsible. And this is precisely what the status of victimhood is. Accomplishes. In a March 9th, 2008 op ed column in the New York Times by Daniel Mendelssohn titled Stolen Suffering, he mentioned several stories of what he calls a plagiarism of other people's trauma, written not by members of oppressed classes, but by members of relatively safe or privileged classes. One example he talks about was an autobiographical story by a woman named Monique DeVille. In it, she tells of her own story during the Holocaust as an orphan Jewish girl who treks some 2,000 miles from Belgium to Ukraine, surviving the Warsaw ghettos, at one point shooting a German officer to escape, and then taking refuge in the forest where she was protected by kindly wolves. The story gained so much traction and was believed in so many areas. A book titled Misha in 1997 was written, which was a memoir of the Holocaust years, was this very story. However, years later, it became true that this story was completely false. It was all made up. In fact, Monique wasn't even Jewish. She was a Belgium Roman Catholic. Defending herself when interviewed... And asked, why did she write this story? She declared this, the story is mine, not actually reality, but my reality, my way of surviving. How is this type of deception surviving? She is declaring with her guilt by appropriate, excuse me, she is dealing with her guilt by appropriating suffering. She was fine during the war. She never experienced anything that most Jewish girls would. She never suffered as others did. And the only way to deal with that guilt was to identify as the victim herself. To become a young Jewish girl, though she was not. So that she might be accounted innocent. Claiming victim status is the battle cry today for a culture with no direction or pathway to expiate their guilt. 
Brooks describes it this way, quoting political scientist Thomas Berger, who said, We live in an age of apology and recrimination. The conflicts of campus on campus today take on a Salem witch trial intensity. In the Middle East, the Israelis and the Palestinians compete for the victimhood narrative. Even America's heartland populace see themselves as the victims of the oppressive coastal elites. In other words, to these articles, the victim status or the intensity that we experience today is nothing more than the attempt to expiate our guilt onto someone else or onto some other group in order to be accounted innocent. In the end, we are all looking for a scapegoat. We are all looking for a place where we can find rest from our guilt. Where we can go, where no charge will be brought against us. But does any of this work? Does it fix the problem? I labor here this morning for a couple of reasons. One, to show the depth of the problem from a different angle. Here, some 2,000 years later, in the midst of our technological, medical, and scientific breakthroughs, in the midst of human advancement on unprecedented levels, we have gotten nowhere, nowhere in the arena that plagues us all and evidently influences a large portion of what we do with our lives. That is our guilt. Is there any solution to this enormous problem? That doesn't seem to want to go away. Two, as a result, it's not just a few of us, which I think this article makes clear, that feel guilty. It's all of us. All of us are asking the question, how am I accounted innocent in this life? What is the formula? And it's here that I need to make a distinction before moving forward. Guilt comes in many shapes and sizes. Most of the guilt that we feel or talk about or don't talk about is the little G guilt that I'll call it. This is the guilt of a parent wondering if they can do more for their child. Right? This is the guilt of wondering, am I really the worst parent in the world? <clears throat> this is the guilt you might feel for eating or drinking too much. Or the guilt you might feel for screening someone's phone call because you just don't want to talk to them right now. Or maybe it's the guilt you feel for not coming to church today or last week. Or the guilt of making a bad grade. That's important guilt. But for today, it's little g guilt. The guilt I'm talking about and what Hebrews 9 is talking about that we all feel, whether we acknowledge it or not, is capital G guilt. It's what I'll refer to as the guilt of presence. That is, in my heart of hearts, am I fit for the presence of God or not? And the ultimate answer to the question of how am I accounted innocent in this life is answered by the question of presence. Can you stand before God? And if so, what makes you so sure? What makes you fit for his presence? Hebrews 9 gives us our solution to this problem. And this gets to the second point. The solution to our problem, according to scripture, is blood. The solution is blood. Blood must be shed for the removal of any wrongdoing. And that's what guilt is. Guilt is, I have done something wrong. And often, as we have already seen, our guilt comes to us not by doing too much wrong, but by doing too little right. 
And whether we are able to perfectly articulate it or not, we know that something has been passed down to us from our fathers and their fathers that has kept us from doing too little right. It's as Lewis says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Try it. And my, my assumption is that most of us have. But whatever progress that we think that we are making, guilt still remains. Telling us that something more fundamental than behavior is wrong and broken. But this is precisely where the story of Scripture breaks into our dilemma. With incredible news. It's a story that tells us, what if the one that you've really been wronging all along wasn't just the ones that you've hurt or you have ignored, but was God himself? What if I told you that he came to this place to offer his life, the blood, for all the wrongs committed in this world so that your conscience before him would be set free? See, after all, isn't this what our conscience wants? Being found blameless? The best definition that I could come across this week defines conscience as the self-evaluation for how fit you are For the presence of someone. Let me say that again. It's the self-evaluation. For how fit you are. For the presence of someone. Now you know. Why you feel guilty all the time. You know you're not fit. For the presence of many. My kids don't really understand. The concept of guilt. At this point in time in their life. But they feel it. They can be playing in their room. For five or ten minutes by themselves. And I can walk in. And without saying anything, just there's, an, you know, there's a lot of, I didn't do it. Like, you know, it's coming. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm just like, hey, I came to tell you it's time for dinner. But now I'm curious, right? Now I'm like, what's going on in here? It's just there. It's just there. How much more, how much more in the presence of God himself? But this is exactly what the story of Scripture is about, is it not? This is exactly what Jesus has come to do. He has come to make you fit for the presence of God with his blood. And this is what we are holding on to, friends. This is the hope that we are holding on to. As it turns out, the beauty of this solution is that Jesus doesn't forego responsibility of his fallen creation by becoming a victim and saying it was all their fault. Which he could. It's actually the opposite. Where the hero takes full responsibility of you and of me and everything done wrong to him. By becoming the ultimate victim on a cross. He is truly blameless. If there is blood that can cleanse, it would have to be this blood. And this is the point the author is making in verses 13 to 14. For if, and that is a That is a huge word in this text. If, if the blood of goats and bulls, if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh. That is, if they were able to alleviate guilt and they were for a time. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? 
What the author is telling us in chapter 9 is that the blood of animals, even the purest of animals, couldn't fix your standing or your presence before God permanently. And it has to actually come from something more pure, something more innocent, something more perfect. This is why in the opening pages of John's gospel, when John is standing there with his disciples, John the Baptist, he cries out as Jesus walks by, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Friends, Jesus is our Lamb. He is our true offering. Life for life. Death for a death. And this is the only possible solution to the problem. Blood must be spilled, whether that seems archaic or not to you. But not just any blood. And that's what this text is telling us. It's only the most perfect and innocent blood of them all. The blood of Jesus. And why? Because it's only the blood of Jesus that can make you and I fit to be in God's presence. Nothing else can do this. No amount of giving to the poor. No amount of feeding the homeless. No amount of saving the planet. No amount of fighting injustice. Which these are all things that Christians must, Christians must love and must be about and must do. But none of this is going to make you fit for the presence of God. And that is the author's point. In other words, the blood that you will spill, literally and figuratively, with your effort, with your time, with your energy, with your career sacrifices, with your financial sacrifices, and with all of your zeal and passion, which I love, none of it will be enough. And we know it. The author is saying, Jesus can purify your conscience. Your fitness or standing before God from all of these dead works. All of these bad sacrifices. Or as the men heard this past weekend, these bad kings. All these things that you're making They can hide your guilt for a little bit, but they can never get rid of it. And Jesus can. Jesus can get rid of this. Now, our guilt problem, whether we acknowledge it or not, is in fact our own self-evaluation, our own verdict that we are not fit for God's presence. And we are right. But Jesus has come into this world to fix that, friends. And this doesn't mean that once you profess faith in Christ as Savior, that you never feel guilty again. (laughs) Quite the opposite. What it means is that you actually have a pathway to atone. You have a way to deal with this. And not just some way, but a way that actually solves the problem that truly justifies you. You return to the foot of the cross where the perfect blood covers all your wrongdoings, both your intentional and intentional sins, as we talked about back in chapter 5 and as this chapter mentions again in verse 7. You have a new promise that says that this blood truly works and that this is all God requires. In the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, the author writes this, Let not conscience make you linger, not of fitness fondly dream, All the fitness that he requires is for you to feel your need of him. And this he gives you. 
What if our guilt didn't kickstart some movement of good works to feel better about ourselves in time? What if it pointed to what we really needed? What if it reminded us what we really needed? In this way, for the Christian, guilt is good in so much that it is a reminder of what we really need, and that is Jesus and how we are truly made fit for his presence, and that is his blood. This is the solution. It is the only solution. But is being found free of guilt the whole point of this? Is that the author's point? Is that what this is all about? Just for you to come in here and have more of a peace of mind? And I would say, no, it's not. What verse 14 is saying to us is that being guilt-free, purity of conscience even, being fit for the presence of God, isn't actually the end in of itself. It is the means to a different and another end. And what is that end, friends? It is the end of becoming worshipers of this God. It is the end of devoting an entire life to his service which consists of helping the poor, giving our money away, giving our time away, caring about God's creation, loving each other sacrificially. But why do we do this now? Because that's what Jesus has done for us. He shed his blood for us to make us his, to make us worshipers, to make us servers of this God. And what verse 14 is saying to us is that no good works can happen until the conscience is purified. That seems bold. Why? Because otherwise, as we have seen, and as I've tried to labor to make the point, if our conscience is not pure, all our works, good deeds and all, will ultimately be attempts to self-atone. To expiate our guilt in order to find ourselves innocent, to find ourselves blameless. And in this way, we end up using people for our own peace of mind. And it won't work. It hasn't, and it will never work. But if I accept this gift from Jesus, if I receive the true blood offering here, atonement is final. And my conscience, my fitness for the presence of God is purified. But friends, what makes us want this? That, that's good news. It's the best news you and I have heard all week. What makes us want this? And this gets to my final point, the power of the sacrifice The power of the sacrifice comes in why Jesus does this for you and for me in the first place. It is his love. It is his love for you. Let me try to illustrate this using uh, an illustration I've heard a number of times from various pastors. I'm not trying to hijack this as my own. But let's suppose you and I are going for a walk. Maybe it's this afternoon, and we're, we find ourselves walking along the railroad tracks. And in the distance, we hear the whistle of the train. And just before it gets to us, I begin telling you about how much I think about you, how wonderful you are, how much I love you as a pastor. And, and, and I want to demonstrate that love for you and my care for you. Uh, I, and by doing that, I'm going to jump in front of this train just to prove that to you. So I do it. At my funeral, what do you say about me? Would you say, Ryan Moore, now there's a guy who loves sacrificially. Or would you say, there might have been a few things wrong upstairs with Ryan that we didn't know about. (laughs) Right? So it's not going to change you. Let me offer another scenario. This one's all mine. Let's say that you and I are walking along the same tracks. And then a group of people, let's not get into the details of it, but a group of people come out and say, one of you has to die and we choose Ryan. Train comes, I take the hit for you and others, and 
Well, what would you say about me at my funeral? Did I love you sacrificially? Or was I forced to act not of my own will? And see, this is the one that really gets us. Especially if you've been in the church a while. We look at Jesus and we think, well, God kind of made him do it. Right? Kind of made him do it. Look, I know that Jesus died for me. But there's a lot of people that he died for. And look, I'm happy to be a part of the lot. Don't get me wrong. But it seems like it's something that he was forced to do. Does this change you? It doesn't. It doesn't. If Jesus had to do it, that love doesn't change you. But let me offer you a final scenario. We're walking along the tracks. We go to cross the tracks. And you get your foot stuck. The train is barreling down. Your foot isn't moving in a latch ditch effort to free you from that train. I lean in and I push you out of the way, taking the hit myself. What would you say at my funeral? Did I love you sacrificially? And the answer is yes. But what's the point? The power of the sacrifice, friends, the blood of Jesus, comes not with just somebody dying. But someone loving you so much that they would die if it meant you could go free. That it was for the joy, as the writer of Hebrews will tell us in chapter 12. It was for the joy that was set before him that he went to the cross. And what was that joy? It was you. It was you. That's how Jesus loves you. And that's what makes any of us stand and want to accept the offer of the solution of his blood for our guilt. Goats and calves, as the author tells us in verse 13, they go to be slaughtered, don't they? But they do so unaware of what they are doing, why they are doing it, and who they are doing it for. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. See, what makes us want this solution, what makes us want this blood, what makes us want him is not because of what he can give us. A clean conscience, a fitness before God, the ability to be blameless before him, which are all great things. What makes us want this is that we actually get him. That's what his blood means. That's what this sacrifice means. The one who demonstrates his love for you by dying so that you can go free. The one who shows his love for you by being the true and only scapegoat that there is. Is there power in the blood? Absolutely. But there is so much more, right? There's relationship here. There is access to God. There's presence Something I love that we talk a lot about. It's not just spiritual presence. We will experience real physical presence before God one day. That's what's at stake here. It is real love and it's there for anyone. No matter how guilty you feel this morning. No matter how riddled your past is with events that are unspeakable to you. No matter what haunts you. Or what awaits you in the future. The blood of Jesus does not discriminate. Let me close with one more story. In an interview with Albert Speer, who was a Hitler confidant in World War II, known for his technological genius in keeping all the Nazi factories going during the war so that they could keep the war machine going. Now, Albert probably never fired a gun himself, but he made it possible for tens of thousands of Nazis to carry out their Holocaust. Speer would become the only one the only one of 24 war criminals tried at Nuremberg to actually admit his guilt. One of 24. 
He would spend 20 years in prison, and he would go on to write several books. And in an interview with Good Morning America, Spear was asked about a piece that he wrote. And the interviewer says this to Spear, and this is what I want to share with you and leave you with. He says, you have said that the guilt you have can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? And he responded, I have served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say that I am free, that I am a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I can't do that. I can't. I I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime, and I can't get rid of it. This new book is part of my atoning, he says, or clearing my conscience. The interviewer then pressed the point. You really don't think you'll be able to clear it totally? Spears shook his head. I don't think it'll be possible. That was in 1981. Now you might be saying, look, that's Nazi Germany, y'all. Anyone involved in any aspect of the Nazi regime should never feel blameless or have a clean conscience. And I might agree. But guilt doesn't discriminate, does it? Whether you are a part of the Third Reich or just some dude with a cell phone. Guilt truly is strangely persistent. And all of us feel it. And it doesn't discriminate. The hope of this passage is that thankfully, thankfully, neither does the blood of Jesus. It does not discriminate either. It has been shed for you, and it will never go away for those who would receive it. Amen. We pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus, for the solution that you have provided for our own problem. We thank you for its power. We thank you that it is something that you do joyfully for us. Would we accept it? Would we not try to self-atone anymore? And would we experience the relationship that comes through that, that you desire to be with us, to have us in your presence, not just for us to go and be conscience-free, And would we desire that more and more each day? I pray this in your son's name. Amen.